This is the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Discussions and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Dan Kowalski, online editor of Bender's Immigration Bulletin, and Stephen Yolair of counsel at Miller Marin Ithaca, New York, and adjunct professor of law at Cornell University Law School on the EB-5 Investor Visa Program. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. This is Dan Kowalski. I'm the editor of Bender's Immigration Bulletin, published by LexisNexis. My guest today to discuss the EB-5 Investor Visa Program is Stephen Yale-Lair. He's of counsel at the firm of Miller Mayer in Ithaca, New York. He's been practicing immigration law for over 25 years. Steve is the co-author of Immigration Law and Procedure, the leading multi-volume treatise on immigration law published by LexisNexis. He also teaches immigration and asylum law at Cornell Law School as an adjunct professor. Steve is listed in Who's Who in America and an international Who's Who of corporate immigration lawyers as one of the best immigration lawyers in the world. He's the 2001 recipient of AILA's Elmer Freed Award for Excellence in Teaching and the 2004 recipient of AILA's Edith Lowenstein Award for Excellence in Advancing the Practice of Immigration Law. For many years now, Steve has been very active in the EB-5 investor visa area, both as representing individual clients and also teaching and lecturing around the country, monitoring listservs and uh, in general, trying to educate the wider world about EB-5 visas. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Looking forward to it. Can you begin by letting us know what the origins were uh, of the EB-5 program, who created it, and when and why, and what were the aspirations and hopes for the EB-5 program of its creators? Sure. Congress created the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Program in 1990 as part of a general overhaul of immigration law. EB-5 stands for the Employment-Based Fifth Preference Category, and that's why it has the acronym of EB-5. It basically allows someone to get a green card if they invest $500,000 or a million dollars, depending on where the project is located, and because of that investment, create or save at least 10 jobs for U.S. workers. Congress wanted an EB-5 program because they saw the success of similar programs in other countries such as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and they thought that we too should have a similar program by which people through investment can both create jobs for U.S. workers and stimulate the economy. Congress set up the program with an annual allocation of 10,000 green cards. But because of the complexity of the program, it took several years for the program to start to take off. Steve, are there lower dollar amount uh, entry points for the other similar investor visa programs in other countries? Yes. In Canada, for example, uh, it's only $400,000 to get a green card there through investment. And I think the entry points in other countries are also lower than the United States. In the United States, it's either 500000 or a million. Congress set it up so that if you invest in a normal part of the United States, like Midtown Manhattan, then you need to put in at least a million dollars into a project. However, if you invest in either a high unemployment area, defined as being 150% of the national unemployment rate, 
or in a rural area, then you only have to invest $500,000. In your work as a private attorney representing and advising foreign investors, uh, have you found the differing entry amounts country to country as being a barrier or a limiting factor in encouraging people to invest in America? Well, certainly the program in the United States is not nearly as popular as it is in Canada and other countries for a variety of reasons. One is the dollar amount, the fact that you do have to invest more in the United States than to get a green card in Canada, say. Another issue about the U.S. EB-5 program is that it's only a conditional green card. It's not like you get a green card and you're all done with the process. You have to submit a business plan showing how you're going to create or save 10 jobs, and then you'll get a conditional green card, and then two years later you have to come back and prove that you really did create or save the 10 jobs that you said you were going to two years earlier. Obviously, economic conditions can change, the best laid plans of a developer may change, and the jobs may not be created. And that uncertainty is another reason why it took a long time for the EP-5 program to take off. May the investor bring his or her family? Yes. As with other employment-based green card categories, it's not only the investor who will get the green card, but his or her spouse and their children who are under the age of 21 and are unmarried. So it's a lot of uh, people who can come to the United States this way. A lot of people will also say, well, I don't want to come to the United States, um, but my son or daughter wants to go to college in the United States and to make it easier for them to be able to stay there after they graduate, perhaps I'll loan or give them the money so that they can get an EB-5 green card and be ready to become a full U.S. citizen right after they graduate from college. From 1996 until 2010, has the usage of the EB-5 program increased year by year? The program has waxed and waned. It took off about 1996 when people began to figure out how to deal with the complexity of the program as it existed then and to package uh, marketing efforts to foreign investors. In 1998, the immigration agency, unfortunately, really cut down on the EB-5 program by imposing new restrictions. For example, before 1998, people didn't have to put in the full 500000 or a million dollars. They could just put in some of the money as cash up front and then promise to pay the rest afterwards. That made the program more attractive, but in 1998, the immigration agency decided, no, they wanted all the money up front. That, combined with other restrictions that the immigration agency imposed in 1998, really put a temporary kibosh on the program so that the numbers dipped down into the low 100s. In the early 2000 era, however, um, we began to see the reemergence of the EB-5 program, particularly through so-called regional centers. Regional centers are something that Congress enacted in 1993 as a way to stimulate the EB-5 program, and it allows states or localities or private individuals to form a geographical area known as a regional center that could be as small as a city or as large as a state to try to stimulate economic development in that area. And unlike the regular EB-5 program, uh, the regional center program allows people to count not only direct jobs, but also indirect and induced jobs. So that means that more investors can effectively participate in the same size project. 
if I were going to build a hotel in Manhattan, for example, and do it outside of a regional center, if the hotel is going to create 100 employees working at the hotel, that means I could bring in a maximum of 10 investors to fund that hotel project. If that same hotel were in a regional center in Manhattan, by contrast, then I could probably get 20 investors because in addition to the 100 direct employees at the hotel, there are probably another 100 indirect and induced employees because people spend their money that they earn at the hotel and other companies do better because the hotel is located there. So the regional center program really allowed the EB-5 program to take off, both because it became a little easier to meet the job requirements and because foreign investors felt a little more comfortable that a U.S. city or state has received designation as a regional center and made them feel that the project is more likely, likely to succeed. So that has allowed the EB-5 program to take off. And last year, 4,300 people got EB-5 green cards, and I suspect that the number may be close to the 10,000 annual cap this year. Do we have any way of knowing or tracking the number of uh, cards that were converted from conditional to permanent? No, the immigration agency statistics aren't that good. There is some fall off between the people who get their conditional green card and then fail to get their conditions lifted two years later because the jobs weren't created or whatever. So far, it's been a fairly good track record, but I do worry that in this recessionary economy, there are some projects that, despite their best intentions, simply will not be able to create as many jobs as they forecast, and some people may not be able to get the full unconditional permanent residency two years after they enter the United States. Would you say that the regional center component of the EB-5 visa is really now the, the mainstay rather than the direct employment part of it? Absolutely. The immigration agency estimates that over 90% of current EB-5 petitions are filed by people through regional centers rather than being their own entrepreneur starting up their own company. So it really is the regional center program that has driven the recent success of the EB-5 program. Three years ago, there were only about 25 EB-5 regional centers. Now, um, last count, I think there are about 85 regional centers that have been approved around the country, and there are probably 30 or 40 more applications pending at the immigration agency. The regional center component really is a, what I call a win-win-win-win, four wins, because first, it's a win for states and localities, and it allows them to be able to fund projects that they wouldn't otherwise be able to fund in this tight capital market. Second, it's a win for U.S. workers because by stimulating the economy, we're creating lots more jobs for U.S. workers. Third, it's a win for EB-5 investors because obviously they get a green card by making an investment in the United States. And fourth, it's a win for U.S. taxpayers because all this economic stimulus is going on with private money from overseas rather than with U.S. taxpayer dollars. So the program, if properly structured and if properly run, can really help the U.S. economy in a variety of ways. Steve, can you speak to the issue of the source of funds and the necessity or desirability of bringing in an accountant or a securities expert to the mix when an immigration lawyer is working on an EB-5 case? 
Absolutely. EB-5 practice is one of the most complex subspecialties of all law because it really combines immigration law, securities law, regular business law, tax law, and investment advice. And you have to make sure that a project can meet all of those requirements before an investor can feel safe and comfortable that the project will really succeed and the person will be able to keep their green card. For example, the immigration law requires that the individual's source of funds be proven to have been lawful. And that makes sense because we don't want terrorists and other people who have gotten their money illegally to be able to then invest it in the United States and get a green card that way. But the immigration agency really doesn't know how far to go in determining whether someone earned their money lawfully. And so we've had cases where it's been relatively easy in some cases and very difficult in others, particularly when you've got a rich family that's just been living off a trust fund for years and years uh, as to where the money was originally earned and to prove that it was earned legally. It can also pose problems when you are from countries that have lax tax return systems so that not everyone pays their tax return, pays their taxes fully. Or you may have countries like China and India that have restrictions on transferring money outside the country. And so you've got to figure out ways to legally get the money outside the country to be able to, a, to invest it in the United States. On the tax side, people need to realize that becoming a green card holder in the United States, whether it's EB-5 or any other way, means that they are subject to taxation on their worldwide income. And so people need proper tax advice before they decide to take the plunge and get a green card. On the security side, these are essentially sales of securities. And just as I can only buy a share of stock through a licensed broker-dealer, you need to make sure that the project or the city or state are offering these EB-5 project securities in a lawful way. Um, there is an exception, so you don't have to deal with a broker dealer if you have uh, what's known as a Reg D, a sophisticated investor, but there are certain requirements to fall into that. And so projects and investors need to make sure that they meet that exception from the normal registration requirements. And finally, you really need to do your economic due diligence uh, to find out whether the project really is likely to create enough jobs in the two-year period so that the individual investor will be able to get the permanent green card. And immigration lawyers presumably should not be giving economic advice as to whether a project will succeed or fail. So that's why you really need a team of people, each in their own subspecialty, to properly advise either a regional center or an investor how to structure the deal so it will meet all of these various requirements. So in executing an EB-5 plan for an investor, it's not just Stevie Allaire and one secretary. It's, it's a team of four or five or six professionals. Absolutely. We bring economists into the team, securities lawyers. We bring in investment advisors. Um, and through that combination, then, we hope to provide the kind of advice that an investor needs to know whether this is a kind of investment they should be making in the United States. Similarly, when we advise regional centers around the country how to structure their deals, we have a whole team working with us to properly give the regional center the kind of advice they need so that they stay in compliance with all these different areas of law.
You touched on this earlier, but in prior years, early in the program, I know the EB-5 program faced some challenging times and the government uh, issued some precedent decisions uh, on the topic. Can you touch on those and, and say if, if we've gotten past those problems? Yes. Back in 1998, the Immigration Agency issued four precedent decisions in the EB-5 area, and they really tightened up the program in good ways. I mean, they made everyone, for example, commit the full cash up front rather than allow them to pay part of it through a promissory note later. They also tightened up the rules on loans to investors to make sure it's more clearly a commercially reasonable loan if an investor wants to use the money through a loan to invest in the United States. They also required more details of business plans so that um, both the regional center and the investor know more precisely how the project will create the jobs, when they will create them, and what jobs will be created. Despite those precedent decisions, there are still a lot of ambiguities in the EB-5 area. And it's partly because it is so complex, and the immigration agency knows immigration law, but it really doesn't know economic methodologies or other business uh, issues that come up in the EB-5 context. And so both the immigration agency and regional centers and investors are struggling with some of these ambiguities. For example, one issue right now is what happens if there is a change in the business plan? And it takes a little bit longer than anticipated to create the jobs. Is that going to deny someone a, a green card two years later, or is the immigration agency willing to be a little flexible on that? There's another issue about how far out geographically do you count the jobs that are created? Can you have national multipliers, or are you limited only to indirect and induced jobs from the immediate geographic area where the project is located? Those are examples of uh, the issues that the immigration agency is facing right now as it struggles with sort of the next generation of issues in properly administering the EB-5 program. Back to the regional center component, I've seen examples of regional centers ranging from almond farms to ski areas to collections of warehouses. What, what are some of the regional center programs with which you are familiar? All of those are good examples of possible regional centers. I'd say probably the most common type of regional center project is commercial mixed-use real estate. But you do have other things, such as the ski resorts. You've got uh, ethanol refineries in Kansas. Um, you've got uh, manufacturing places all around the country. You've got car dealerships that are struggling and take EB-5 money to save jobs in California and other states. So it's really whatever investors think is a way that they can create or save jobs and the project developers feel that they can use EB-5 money in a way that meets the EB-5 program requirements. And that's why we have so many people right now in this recessionary economy turning to EB-5 program as a way to get their projects funded because they cannot find normal domestic sources of capital anymore. Turning again to the team approach, you described having an accountant, a tax expert, a securities expert, an investment advisor. I can imagine immigration lawyers getting excited by the EB-5 program and dipping into it, uh, dipping their toe into the waters, and then realizing how 
difficult it is and then getting out of it. Is there a cadre, uh, a small group of uh, immigration lawyers who are focused primarily or even exclusively on EB-5 matters? It's a pretty small club um, because until recently there were very few EB-5 projects or investors. And so there are relatively few people like myself who have the experience and training and the longevity to know the ins and outs of the EB-5 program. And so that's why, like any new area of law, lawyers need to figure out, is this something that I want to learn about, or is it so subspecialized or so complex that it's better to refer it out to someone who really knows what they're doing? Is there an entity or a professional organization or association devoted to EB-5 matters? Yes, actually. There is an, a new trade association called Invest in the USA, known as IIUSA. And they have a good website at IIUSA.org. And it is an association both of EB-5 regional centers and attorneys and others interested in the EB-5 program. And that is one way that people can learn more about the EB-5 program is joining that trade association. In addition, immigration lawyers um, can join the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and they have a specialized EB-5 committee that focuses on this area of law as well. Does the agency, USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services, is the agency staffed up uh, sufficiently to, to be able to handle your EB-5 petitions when you file them in a timely manner? Yes and no. In terms of timeliness, the answer is yes. All of the EB-5 petitions are filed with one regional service center out in California, and that allows those 15 or 20 adjudicators to really specialize in EB-5 cases because they are so complex. So in terms of processing times, their decisions are relatively quick, usually within three to six months, which is slightly faster than the normal processing time for other green card petitions. In terms of expertise, Again, because of the complexity of the EB-5 program, unfortunately, immigration adjudicators aren't really trained in business and economic methodology issues, and so sometimes they come up with questions about petitions that someone who is more experienced in those areas would understand, and so that can pause, cause delays for some people. But on the whole, if they believe it's a well-presented petition, and is thoroughly documented, the petitions are usually approved in about three to six months right now, which is pretty quick. If a petition is denied, could you take an appeal to the AAO, the Administrative Appeals Office? Yes, you can appeal both an EB-5 petition filed by an individual investor or the denial of a regional center application to the Administrative Appeals Office. It's pretty tough to win, however, at the AAO. I recently did a case review of cases decided there, and I think only about 5% of the cases appealed in the EB-5 area won at the AAO level. A few years ago, there was a Ninth Circuit case on, on this issue, the Spencer case. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there actually were a lot of cases after 1998 because of the fact that the immigration agency changed the rules in 1998 and then applied those rules retroactively to investors who had applied in good faith under the old interpretations. Uh, those investors now felt they had to sue to be able to stay in the United States. 
There was one case decided by uh, the Ninth Circuit called Spencer Enterprises involving a project out in California where they were doing construction of homes. And there, the Ninth Circuit upheld an AAO decision saying that the project did not meet the EB-5 program requirements. There's another decision called Chang, decided by the Ninth Circuit in 1993, uh, in which a class of investors challenged the retroactive application of the new 1998 rules. And there, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the immigration agency should not apply the rules retroactively. That class action litigation was then remanded back to the district court, where unfortunately it still lingers today. Looking forward, what are the challenges and opportunities that you see for investors, for attorneys, and for the agency? Well, I think there are both challenges and opportunities. On the opportunity side, because of the current economic climate, I think the EB-5 program, if properly administered, would be a real stimulus to the United States. If we used up all 10,000 visas each year, that would be 10,000 times 10 jobs, what's that, 100,000 new jobs that would be created each year. That's a fair number of jobs. And it would be a lot of money going into the U.S. economy from the EB-5 program. That's the opportunity side. The challenges side is to be able to administer the program well and responsibly so that you have high-quality programs offered by regional centers that comply with the securities laws and the immigration laws that are marketed in a responsible way overseas so they don't have exaggerated claims about you know, what will happen after you enter the United States and how your money is going to make tons of money here, et cetera. And those are significant challenges. And I do worry that with the explosive growth of the regional centers, not everyone is well prepared or well trained, and some people may inadvertently exaggerate you know, what their project is going to do vis-a-vis -vis somebody else's, and some project may fail as a result, and we may get bad publicity, and the whole program may come tumbling down again, just as it did in 1998. I hope that won't happen, and I think it really is incumbent upon both the immigration agency and regional centers and investors to try to self-police themselves to make sure that the program continues to grow in a responsible way. Is there any legislation proposed or pending that would uh, help improve the program? There is legislation that it's about to be introduced by Senator Leahy of Vermont that would do several things. First, it would make the regional center a permanent part of the EB-5 program. Right now, it's temporary and it's due to expire September 30, 2012, and it'd be much more, uh, it'd be much better for the program if they were able to make a permanent so people wouldn't have to keep going back to Congress for temporary extensions. Senator Leahy's bill will also improve the administration of the EB-5 program by giving the immigration agency some more money to administer the EB-5 program and also allowing petitions to be processed more smoothly and more efficiently through the agency. Finally, it would change or clarify some of the issues that I alluded to before in terms of what constitutes a material change, how do you define an area that is high unemployment or rural. And so if that legislation gets enacted, then I think that will enhance the overall EB-5 program. In closing, Steve, what advice would you give to an attorney who is thinking about getting into the area of EB-5 investor visa programs? 
I would say like any area of immigration law, do a lot of research first, read as much as you can, talk to other attorneys who have done EB-5 cases, try to find out the pitfalls that could happen to either you or your investor, and go carefully. Uh, people somehow think that you know because these are rich investors, uh, things are going to go more smoothly or they're going to be able to earn more money than in other kinds of cases. That's certainly not the case. Because of the complexity of this, people uh, really have to understand the program well to avoid a lot of pitfalls, and that's why you should do your homework first. Thank you, Steve. My guest today has been Steve Yell-Lair of Counsel at Miller Mayer in Ithaca, New York, the co-author of Immigration Law and Procedure, published by LexisNexis and professor at Cornell Law School. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dan. This has been the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. Visit all the LexisNexis communities at LexisNexis.com slash community. LexisNexis, total practice solutions.